Good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. He is risen. He is risen All right. Happy Easter Sunday. It's not Easter, but our text is very Easter-like, and our songs this morning are going to be very Easter-like. And as Christians, guess what? This truth that we celebrate on Easter is true every single day for us, right? And every time we gather as a church on Sundays to worship, the truth exists, it remains, we proclaim it, hallelujah, Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen. Amen. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read select portions of it this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's on page 961 in the Pew Bible. I'd encourage you to open up a Bible and get your eyes on God's Word. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I will tell you kind of where I go as I skip through some of these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, a people redeemed by Jesus and gathered around Jesus. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Jump down to verse 20 with me. Verse 20, but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet." The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jump down to verse 45 with me. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a living spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and he is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will raise imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? 
O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord Jesus, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that we wouldn't only cognitively be reminded of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming resurrection for all of those who die, but that we would experience and feel the power of that resurrection. Lord, that we would have increased hope, that we would have increased confidence that we could live this life with assurance because of this promise that when our physical body dies, that's not the end for us who are in Christ. But we have this glorious future to look forward to. And so may you meet us where we're at this morning, and may you allow us to encounter you and to experience your truth for the glory of God, the good of our own souls and lives and the people that we do life with, and the advancement of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, this is my opinion, but I think it's a common opinion. The 90s had some incredible movies, right? If you agree with me, put your hand up nice and high. Like some of those little kid sports movies from the 90s, The Sandlot, Little Giants, Mighty Ducks, you could keep going on and on. They are amazing. And in one of them, The Little Giants, there's, it's, if you haven't seen the movie, it's kind of the same script for all of these movies, that there's like this little reject team of sports players, right? They, they don't make the cut. They don't get accepted onto a team. If there's tryouts, they, they never make it. They always get cut, or they're just discarded. They're not even invited to tryouts. And, and in this movie, The Little Giants, there's all these little reject players who form this team called The Little Giants to take on the Cowboys, the dominant other peewee football team, and, and they're way overmatched, right? I mean, the Cowboys, they're organized, they're ordered, they have like a, a, a coach who has won tons of championships, they have money, they have the support of the community, everybody rallies around them and wants them to win, and there's no way that The Little Giants can beat the Cowboys, right? But that's their mission, the Little Giants are coached by a brother of the coach of the Cowboys. And they have this little feud, right? Because one brother is really successful. The, the coach of the Cowboys, he's successful. He has a successful business. He's well-loved in the community. And the other brother is like a scientist who can never make it happen. He can't figure it out. He's trying to do life. He's, he's smaller in stature. He's weaker in stature. But as his daughter is cut from the team, from the Cowboys, he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach this team, the Little Giants. And I'm going to take all these reject players, and I'm going to build a team, and I'm going to coach them, and we're going to play the Giants, and, or the Cowboys. And, and as the story goes, the night before the big game, all these players, a beautiful scene, they're all like looking themselves in the mirror, trying to pump themselves up, trying to get ready for the game. And then on game day, they're, they're smack-talking the Cowboys, because in sports psychology, there's this thing called smack-talk or trash-talk where you actually try to, there's physical competition in sports, but there's also a mental competition. There's a mental game going on. And so a lot of sports psychology will actually say some smack talk, some trash talk is good. Now, as Christians, we're like, no, you got to be humble. And as Scandinavians, many of you, you're like, you just got to be quiet. <laughs> that is humility. Is Actually, I think I'm better than you, but I'm going to shut my mouth, right? And, and so we, we don't talk a lot about smack talk or trash talk, but sports psychology will say there's a certain level of smack talk or trash talk that actually helps give you a mental advantage. It helps to, 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 to um, 
humiliate your opponents and to give you an advantage. And so the little giants, they're smack-talking the cowboys. And in one of the best scenes, Jake, the scrawniest, smallest guy on the team, they're in the huddle on the football field, and he pulls out all these pills from his pocket. And he passes them out to the team. And he says, I take these for acid indigestion. And one of the other players says, what are we going to take them for? And he says, for intimidation. They all pop it in, and it causes them to foam at the mouth. They get up on the football line, and they're intimidating their opponents, right? That's their way of smack-talking, trash-talking. And the little giants go on to win the game. Part of this is because smack-talk, trash-talk, it built their confidence, right? And, of course, it's a movie. Every analogy breaks down. But this is what Paul does for us in this text. See, all of us are up against an opponent that without some, some outside help, some outside assistance, and then some internal dialogue, some smack talk against death, you and I are up against a, a, an opponent that crushes us. The scriptures tell us that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy and humanity, we, we have this, this innate fear of death and, and terror of death, or, or we avoid death or we ignore it. Some people, death and the memory of death, if you think about loved ones who have passed away, it causes extreme emotion because it hurts, there's grief, there's loss. Some people, as they near their own deathbed, they, they, they want to avoid it and ignore it and not talk about it, right? Let's not talk about death. Maybe even in a moment or a season of health in life, like we all handle this differently. Some people like to engage death and talk about it. Some people like to ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, and, and kick the can down the road. Let's not engage this topic because we don't know what to do with it. Our world doesn't know what to do with it. Is death the end? Do I come back reincarnated? What happens when I die? This is one of the core questions of, the, of, of, of mankind. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Where did I come from? What happens when I die? Different cultures, different religions, different people come to different conclusions. But this text here today, the Apostle Paul is telling you and I that we can look death in the face and fear not. It's amazing what Paul does. He smack talks death. Look at verse 55 with me. Starting in verse 54, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. He's quoting an Old Testament passage there, which we're going to look at at the end of this message. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then look at the smack talk. The word O, it's used as an expression. Uh, uh, it's just any type of expression, right? Like, oh dear, right? That's how we use it. Oh, boy. Oh, oh. <laughs> Trying to get my best Minnesotan voice in there. Oh, it's just, it, 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 it's a term of expression. And here Paul uses it as an expression of victory, of confidence, of smack talk to our greatest enemy, death. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? See, Paul can, and we as Christians, believers in Christ, we can stare death right in the face. We need not fear, and death hurts. We need to grieve loss. Because 
physical life, the gift of physical life, and the deep relationships that are created in physical life matter. It's God's good gift to us. But when it comes to death in Jesus, we need not fear. We can stare death in the face and say, oh, death, where is your victory? It has none. Oh, death, where is your sting? It has none. He says the sting of death is sin, so death actually does have a sting, but it's sin, it's separation from God, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we need not fear death. We can stare it in the face and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You have none. And so that's what Paul is doing here in this text for us. He's, he's helping you and I. He's helping the church in, first, in Corinthians, in this letter, 1 Corinthians. He's helping them to engage this life, this, this mortal life, this fleshly life. He's helping them to engage it in such a way where they need not to fear death, and it also motivates them for mission and for living. So we're going to walk through some of this text. We're going to do it pretty quickly here. I'm going to, we're not going to cover every word. Uh, I encourage you to go and read this whole chapter on your own and kind of bathe in it this upcoming week as you think about smack-talking death for yourself and how having a confidence and, and the ability to stare death in the face for yourself and say, I don't fear you. You're not the last word. You have nothing over me. As you contemplate that truth this week and as you scatter into community groups and look at this passage, read this passage over for yourself. Today we'll look at a few select chunks of it. The first one is uh, verses 1 through 11 here. And what we're going to see in this part of the passage is that the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. Paul starts by instructing this church. He says, now I, I would remind you, brothers. Remember, the church is a family. It's made up of brothers and sisters in Jesus. It's not an organization. It's not a business. You're not a customer. You're not a consumer. You're family. I would remind you, brothers, sisters, of the gospel. This word gospel in Greek is euangelion. It means the good news. So the word that we use, we translate it evangelical. It has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I would remind you of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you. And if you missed the beginning of this series back in January, you can go back to Acts chapter 18 and see how Paul came into the city of Corinth and he proclaimed this gospel. You can actually see what he preached to them in Acts chapter 18. He says, I came to you and I preached to you, which you received. You received this good news and you stand in this good news and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. It goes on in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is of first importance to the Christian and to the church. It's not of only importance. The gospel has many different facets, and it has many different implications. The gospel calls people who believe in Jesus to go out into all of life, making much of God and doing things in his name. The The call is to love God and love neighbor as yourself. And so the gospel, the implication of the gospel is that you and I would go out into the world that we would love neighbor, that we would love neighbor, that we would love neighbor, that we would do good works for other people on behalf of God. But sometimes we can get so lost in doing good works for people in the implications of the gospel, of the good news, that we 
lose sight of the good news. So when we gather together as a church, we're here to be reminded of the good news. I'm not here to give you a list of good deeds to go and do. You should find that yourself and you should go do those good deeds in the name of Jesus. Amen? When we gather, our point in coming together is that we would be reminded of the importance of the gospel, that we are sinners by nature and choice, and God stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He overcame sin and death in the grave to set us free from the bondage of sin and to set us free from the fear of death. Amen? That's why we gather. Some people get really frustrated with the church gathering because it's like all they do is sit there for like an hour and they sing and some guy talks at them and then they go and live. The, yep, that is what we do. To remind us of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and then you have every other waking hour of your life to go and do good deeds for other people. So it's not selfish or it's not ungodly for a group of people to gather for periods of time, whether it's in a home or a church building, to be reminded of the first importance, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. This is of first importance. And this is what motivates all of our living, everything that we do. And Paul here explains to us, he reminds us what this gospel is. I already told you, it's good news, right? It's, it's who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I love how he goes on to just remind this church. Here's the first and earliest Christian creed. Some people get really frustrated with like historical Christian creeds and I understand some of that and there's, there's a time and a place to like assess the creeds and you know, look at this one. First century creed. Paul says, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, not changing politics, not changing your family or friends' minds about politics, not not giving money to missions and to missionaries, not bringing clean water to a community, not creation care, not reforming police. These are all good, fine things that we should talk about. But of first importance, the, the foundation that everything else that we do is that is built on, it is the gospel. I deliver this to you as of first importance, what I also received, and here's the message, here's the creed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Though some have fallen asleep, and they've all fallen asleep now. Remember, this was written in real time 2,000 years ago. That is the first Christian creed. What's the essence of the Christian faith? What do you need to believe to say that you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus? Well, you don't have to agree perfectly with our statement of faith as a church or a denomination. You don't have to agree with all my theological rabbit trails. What do you need to believe? That Christ died for your sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Period. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, he is Lord. Amen? That's what unites us. Not all the things that so many Christians and churches get stuck dividing over. And so Paul here is reminding, this is of most importance to you, first importance to you, the gospel. And then he, he goes on, to tell us that resurrection matters. 
Look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, remember that's part of this creed that Jesus was raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In this church, there was questions about the resurrection, the, the physical bodily resurrection of the church. Some people believe that the body wasn't raised after death, that, that it just ceased to exist. And there were a lot of different theories about what happens to the body, about the afterlife in the church, just like there are today. And Paul's point here in this section is to tell the church, to tell you and I 2,000 years later that resurrection matters. The resurrection of Jesus matters because it is a model for us that the body matters and that God actually, his plan is to resurrect the body. To have an embodied future, not in, in disembodied future. And not that you will reincarnate into some other animal or some other life form or, or some other force in the universe or the, or, or the world, right? There, there's not another energy that you become. There is a physical resurrection to Jesus. And if there isn't, we're foolish. And so if the, the, the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, this is a waste of your time. And listening to a pastor preach for a while and singing some songs in a building, it is a waste of your time. Get a better hobby. Go do something else on your Sunday morning. Get your grocery shopping done. Have brunch. Go sit in your backyard. Go stare at a lake. And you can do that every now and then on a Sunday morning even to still be a Christian, right? But, but stop coming to church if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. Stop opening up your home. Stop reading the Bible. Stop praying. And that's his point. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, this is all in vain. But he is convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead because there's eyewitnesses to this event. It says that he appeared to the disciples, to the 12, and then to the 500, and then to Paul himself, who met him on the road to Damascus, and Jesus blinded him with light and showed up, and, and he's convinced that the resurrection of Jesus really happened, and it matters, and there will be a resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection for those who are in Jesus. We will be raised up. Death is not the last word. Death does not have victory. God has victory through Jesus Christ, and God has raised Jesus Christ up from the dead, and we will be raised as well. Verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. There's this link between the resurrection of Jesus and what will happen to our bodies in the future. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. Then, there all, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Why? Because if none of this is true, you ought to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. And, and Paul goes on to say that. Look at verse 32, in the middle of it. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And this doesn't have to do with hanging out with people who aren't Christians. This verse has been taken out of context and used to, to, to sever some really meaningful relationships that Christians have with non-Christians, some really evangelistic relationships that Christians have with non-Christians. It, it's related to this idea of resurrection and false belief around that. And he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. 
For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying this, this resurrection thing matters because if there is no physical resurrection, if there is no life after death, you ought to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. But guess what? Your life has more meaning than that. Your existence has more meaning than eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. There is a future hope. There is a future resurrection. The same way that God raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us from the dead. Resurrection matters. That's his whole point here in this middle section. And he, and he does a little bit of death smack talking in here as well. Look at verse 40, uh, 24. It says, Then comes the end, when he delivers to the, king, the kingdom to God and the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. Jesus is king. Jesus wins. Verse 25, he says, And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Oh, death. Oh, death. What do you have on me? What do you have on us? Paul goes on here to tell us that the resurrection morphs. I had to get an M in there, right, to match the matters, right? Resurrection morphs. It changes us. Again, I, I don't have time to go through every verse on here and hit every point on this, but let's just take a look at it starting in verse 35. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come with? It's a good question, right? If there is a physical resurrection in the future, what will that look like? Am I going to be raised at my prime of life? I hear, in, I'm a big baseball guy, 27 is your peak as a baseball player. Unfortunate, right? I used to think like, yeah, 27, and now I'm past 27. I'm like, it's all gone for me. I have no more hope. I'm past my prime. And so like, is my resurrection body going to be at peak age 27? For some people, 27 was not their physical peak age. Is resurrection going to be at age four when everything was innocent and good and I wasn't, right? We don't, we don't know. Some people really get stuck on that. The point that Paul is making here is that the resurrection does morph our body. They're asking, what, what, what will the body look like? What will the, what's it going to be like? And he, he says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's, he's talking about this metaphor of physical death giving birth to spiritual and eternal life. Physical death is a passing into eternity. Now, now, in Jesus, if we're in Jesus, we begin to experience eternal life here and now. But when this physical body, this natural body passes away, it gives birth to something greater. And he uses this imagery. He says, what you sow does not come to life and let it, unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Jesus himself said that if a, if a grain of wheat falls, it must go down into the ground and die so that it would bear fruit. It's this imagery, this agricultural imagery. Now, we know seeds don't, aren't dead, right? But they appear dead. They look dead. They don't look like they have life. You put that thing in the ground, you water it and give it time, and it births. That seed transforms. It changes. It morphs into an incredible plant that produces fruit. That's the imagery that Paul is giving us here. Some of you will notice, I want to pause real quick, that I skipped over the baptism of the dead. Yep, I did. It's a, it's a, it, it, Paul, we don't have time to go into that. There's a ton of different theories. Paul's point is not to teach us about baptism of the dead. 
His point is to say that resurrection matters. There is a physical resurrection and stop fighting about that and let it motivate how you live and let it give you confidence in life and death. That's, that's his point. And so we can talk about uh, baptism of the dead another time. Back to this point, resurrection morphs. He's saying just the same way that a, that a, that a grain goes into the ground and it comes up, it sprouts with something more beautiful, more abundant, that's same with us. This physical body that we have here and now with all of its limitations, in the future, it will sprout into something more beautiful, more glorious, more enjoyable, more productive. He says, verse 39, For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for animals and for birds and for humans. Jump down to verse 42. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. You hear that? He's talking about our our physical bodies. This is what is sown here and now. It's like a seed. Pretty small. Not much to look at. But when it gives birth to the imperishable, it's in power. All of your physical limitations now all of your disabilities, all of your incapabilities, everything that that your body reminds you of your mortality with will in the future give birth to immortality and to power and to glory. Verse 44, he says, It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a living spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. So are you and I. Why I love going to Ash Wednesday service over at Elmo Church, one of our partner churches, and putting the ashes on people's forehead and saying, from dust you came, to dust you will return. This physical body, remember? God created mankind from the dust of the ground and breathed the life of God into that body. So this, this marrying of natural and spiritual, well, this physical body will die as well, and it will give birth to this spiritual body, this spiritual existence, this eternal existence. The first man was of the earth, a man of dust. The second man, this is Jesus the second Adam, is of heaven. He's this this combination of natural and spiritual, born from the Virgin Mary, from, from the creation of the dust, and from the Spirit of God from heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Resurrection morphs our bodies into something different. Look at what he says in verse 50, 51, and 52. I tell you then, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The kingdom of God is imperishable. It's ever-existing. Our bodies are limited. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Resurrection changes us. It morphs us from one degree of glory bound by humanity into another degree of glory without bound, without limit, an eternal spiritual existence with God in heaven for all of eternity. We 
shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And he moves into the last point that I want to pull out here before we celebrate this truth. The resurrection motivates. The resurrection motivates us for life and for godliness and to keep going and to keep running. The the resurrection gives us grounds to smack talk death. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We have nothing to fear in life or death because of Jesus' resurrection and because of the promise that we have a future resurrection. Those of you mourning the loss of loved ones, if they're in Jesus Christ, it hurts, grieve well, but don't fear. Those of you fearful of your own death, don't fear. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It has none. The sting of death is sin, but sin has been conquered in Jesus. And the power of sin is the law. The law has been accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus. And thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 58, I love this motivation for our living. He says, therefore, all of this truth, all of this talk about the resurrection, it has a therefore. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your life is not empty. Your life is not worthless. Your life is not lived in vain. Run with Jesus. Run to Jesus. Believe in who he is and what he's done. And keep serving him. Keep persevering. Keep in step with him. Hold fast, as he said at the beginning of the chapter, to the truth of the gospel, to the good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what he's calling you to do. Amen? That's what we've been called to, church family. As I close down this morning, I want us to flip together to Isaiah chapter 25 and see where this quote comes from. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read it and just let this wash over us. Then the worship team is going to come back up, and they're going to play a song that I'd love you to just sit and take communion and and think about Jesus' body given for you but then his body resurrected and the promise of your resurrection body. Take communion during that first song and then we're going to do a couple extra songs this morning and we're just going to sing in the victory of the resurrection. Amen? So first, uh, not first Corinthians, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. This is a promise from God, a prophecy through the mouth of Isaiah. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all of his people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Some of you in your communion packet, it will say miracle meal. It's a miracle if you can open that one. Be very careful. The gray tops, those are tough. A miracle meal. It's such a, it's not, it's such a small, it's, I have a tension with communion. Because it's a reminder for us of what Jesus has done, and it's a pointer to us of the marriage supper of the Lamb, but it is not a feast. So let it just be like a really cheap, small, bad-tasting appetizer that makes you so hungry for this meal. Listen to this promise. 
On this mountain, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, will make for his people a feast of rich food. Communion reminds us of that day when we will be with him in his presence, having this feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, not stale juice. Right? But it's a reminder of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then I invite you to, to take the reminder of this feast that is to come, the communion packets there in front of you. If you believe in Jesus, that's there to remind you of who he is, what he's done, and to point you forward to what is to come. And then we'll stand and we'll sing in the victory that we have in Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, I thank you that we need not fear death, but we can look death straight in the eye and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And thanks be to you, God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we take communion this morning. We gather as a community to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who overcame sin and death and the grave. May you unite us around the gospel. May you nourish our souls and our spirits as we sing and as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.